Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. We're going to read from, uh, from Jonah, and uh, I wonder how many of us read as a regular thing uh, outside of, sort of Bible reading and stuff like that. Who reads? Who likes to read? Anybody? Yeah? Okay, so... I'm guessing a lot of read stuff on the web or books, interest magazines maybe, or newspapers. Um, I don't know about you, you may not be like me, but one thing I've observed about myself is that my attention never fluctuates when I'm reading a football magazine or you know, even an item of news or something like that. I just read it through, even something through, you know, a work situation. I've got a a report to read. I just focus on it and read it through. But I've noticed about myself, my my attention can fluctuate when I'm reading the Bible. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Has anybody ever noticed that, or is it just me? Thanks, Steve. (laughs) Well, can I encourage you to really focus on this part, because actually, from my bit, this is actually the most important part, which is actually the reading of God's Word. What I say about it is kind of incidental in a sense, because it's actually what God says that's the really important thing, isn't it? And uh, my job, I suppose, is encapsulated in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, where it says that Ezra read in the book of the law, he read it distinctly, so clear reading of the Bible is very important. He gave the sense, in other words, he said, you know, roughly what it meant, and he caused the people to understand. So kind of my role is just kind of to unpack this stuff a little bit for you, but actually, you know, what the Bible actually says is a crucial part. So let's really give our attention to the reading of the Scripture. I'm going to start at Jonah 1, verse 15. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. Verse 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, O Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple." Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Okay, looking around the room, we're all mature adults here. If somebody who was completely out of sync with what goes on in churches, no interest in the Bible, none of that stuff, came into this room and observed what was going on, that a guy is standing at the front and giving a talk about a man 
who lived 2,800 years ago, who was swallowed by a giant sea creature and three days later was coughed up on the beach, they would quite frankly probably think we were all crackers. Am I right? This is one of the most ridiculed stories in the entire Bible, and thank you guys for giving me the privilege of preaching from it. You know, we could think about how did Jonah, you know, survive down there? How did he get oxygen? What about the digest? I thought about the digestive juices, you know, that must have kind of attacked his skin and stuff like that. Maybe, actually, when he went to Nineveh, his, his, he was so disfigured by all the, I kind of think about all these things, you know, he was so disfigured by all the digestive juices that had attacked him. It was actually the sight of Jonah was so scary that when he said, you know, in 40 days God's going to destroy Nineveh, you know, people actually sat up and listened because this guy looked really seriously strange. <laughs> However, that's just a theory. What I would say, though, is that as Christians, we can be kind of threatened a little bit by the fact that, you know, this story is quite outlandish, let's be honest, eh? And Christians in the, in the late 19th, early 20th century felt very threatened because their biblical faith was seriously undermined by the emergence of the theory of evolution. Let's be frank about that, you know. People today assume that the theory of evolution is actually a fact, don't they, for the most part? So it's not surprising that Christians felt threatened because the account of creation in the Scriptures was suddenly being contradicted on quite a wide scale. And so they tried to, in some cases, kind of build in, you know, uh, credibility clauses for the Christian faith. And one of those is quite a famous example in relation to Jonah, that Christian literature began to be circulated about an alleged real-life Jonah called James Bartley who was apparently lost off a whaling vessel close to the Falkland Islands at the end of the last, no, the previous century, the 19th century. And the story goes that this guy actually went overboard in high seas and was swallowed by a whale. Real, real whale. Several days later, this whale was harpooned by another vessel and, and brought in and cut open. And sure enough, this guy is said to have been brought out alive and, you know, real life Jonah. And this is quite a big deal. However, the captain of James Bartley's ship knew nothing of this occurrence, and it was quite, quite a spurious tale, and there's absolutely no evidence to authenticate it whatsoever. My point is that as Christians, we don't have to go to extremes to try and find another example, because what it says in the scripture here that we read together, in verse 17 of chapter 1, the Lord provided a huge fish. Now, that word in Hebrew, provided, could mean appointed, it could mean commanded, it could mean commissioned. It's a kind of a special event that God has prepared in order to achieve a particular purpose. And in the book of Jonah, God prepares four things. He provides four things that are key to this story. He provides the fish. He provides a leafy plant to shade Jonah. He provides a worm to gnaw away at the leafy plant so it dies. And then he pro provides... Um, a, a sultry wind to beat down on Jonah's head. So there are four things that he provides. The key thing for me is that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke of this story as if it was a true story. When he spoke in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, he said, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. 
The Lord Jesus is saying that this was an actual story, a real human being. This actually happened to him. And furthermore, it was an illustration of what Christ would do. He would die. He would be buried. And he would rise again. So in one sense, as, as, as Christians, we don't need any kind of scientific style proof because we operate on the level of faith all the time in relation to the Scriptures. We're familiar with miracles, aren't we? That the Lord Jesus and the apostles did miracles. They did amazing stuff that is out of the ordinary. It's not the everyday. God intervenes in human history in extraordinary ways at times and does the unexpected. And this is a particular case in point. Now, Jonah himself is said to be the son of Amittai. Jonah's name means dove. Now, he's a very undove-like character. If dove is something that we generally come to, rec- you know, to, to, to connect with the idea of peace, which is, I guess, biblically true as well as culturally. Um, Amittai, his dad, is called, um, his name means truth. So we've got this kind of combination of peace and truth right at the heart of this, of this, uh, of this little book. It's quite interesting because the gospel that Jonah is going to take to the Ninevites offers peace to those who are sinners through repentance. But it is on the basis of God's truth. God cannot abide sin and he's going to punish sin. He's going to destroy Nineveh. That's the message. Unless they repent, he's going to destroy the city. God's not going to compromise on his standards, on his character, on his holiness, on his righteousness. But he's able to offer peace on a basis that is satisfying to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes from a place called Gath-Hefer, which is in the land of Zebulun, only a few miles from Nazareth where the Lord Jesus grew up. So it's interesting, isn't it, that he grew up in Galilee, similar area to, to the Lord where he lived as a boy, as a young person. And uh, we'll see that you know, Jonah becomes an incredible illustration of, of the Lord Jesus. He lived at the time of Jeroboam II, And this was in the northern kingdom of Israel after the division of the kingdom. It had been going about 100 years. Jeroboam I had basically taken the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom and had set up a whole system of idolatry that would mean that they didn't have to go to Jerusalem where where Judah and Benjamin were settled. They could settle in the north and stay there and have a kingdom of their own. Now, basically, at this time when Jonah was living... It was a time of great outward prosperity. The northern kingdom was prospering. Its borders were extended. Things were going well. But it was a time of tremendous spiritual corruption. And how often those things go hand in hand, don't they? We look at our own society today. In in our area of the world, never has there been a more prosperous time. Okay, it's a time of recession, but come on. You know, let's, let's get real here. Compared with the rest of the world, we are amazingly well off, aren't we? And yet we see moral and spiritual corruption all around us, don't we? And this was certainly true in Jonah's time. He would have been aware also of the prophecy of Amos, which I think is a significant thing that we need to understand in relation to the book of Jonah. Amos was called to the southern kingdom... Generally speaking, that's where he operated. But he was sent on a specific mission to go to the northern kingdom and warn them of impending doom. That God was going to punish them for their unfaithfulness to him, for their hypocrisy, for their exploitation of the poor, and all that kind of stuff. And how he was going to do it was he was going to bring the nation of Assyria down upon them, the most powerful nation on earth at that time. They would be scattered. They would be absolutely and completely decimated. 
and they would be oppressed and afflicted from north to south. And we can read about that in Amos chapter 6, verse 14. So I think it's a bit simplistic to say that Jonah was just a disobedient prophet who ran away from God and didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. He had his reasons for being disobedient. He did not want to go and preach to his nation's enemies. He did not want God who was good and forgiving and loving. He did not want God to forgive his nation's enemies. And that was probably his reasoning behind why he turned his back and went in the opposite direction. So for those who weren't here last week, um, Jonah chapter 1, he's... um, He's commissioned by God, the word of the Lord comes to him, he's told to go to Nineveh, his great city, but he goes down to Joppa. Key word in chapter 1 is down, he goes down to Joppa, seaport. He wants to head for Tarshish, which is commonly thought to be Spain, nobody's quite sure exactly, because there are other references to Tarshish which make it sound like it's not Spain. But anyway, let's say it's Spain for now, it doesn't really matter, he's going somewhere else, he's not going where he's supposed to go, that's the main point. But he's going down. He goes down into the ship. In the ship, he goes down into the hold of the ship. And eventually, he goes down into the sea and down to the bottom of the sea. So as soon as he has made the decision to disobey God, there is only one direction that his life is going to take, and that is down. And that's really important that we grasp that. Jonah is asleep in the hold of the boat when God sends this incredible storm. The boat's about to break up. The, the sailors are praying to their various idols and gods to save them and so on. The captain comes down and challenges Jonah, brings him up on deck, say, why aren't you calling on your God? Everybody else is. They bombard Jonah with questions. Jonah admits that the storm has come because of him and that if they throw him overboard, the storm will calm down and then all be saved. So that's the point where we've come to. One or two people may be a little bit drowsy after their Sunday dinner, so we'll just have a lighter moment now, and we'll have a little picture quiz to see if we're all awake. Who's the top left on that picture? Yeah, that's Whitney. Middle? Well done. Robert Maxwell. Top right. Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. And, ooh, I'll I'll tell you what, I'll be really, really proud of anybody who gets bottom right, because that's quite an oldie. That is a woman called Mary Jo Kopechny. Does that name mean anything to anybody? That's right. Okay. Middle. Beach Boys. And that is Dennis Wilson, the, one of the brothers there with the big quiff. Okay. And bottom left, Dodger Geezer. That's Rasputin, yeah. What did all these people have in common? Come on, hazard a guess. Correct, they did. A number of them were sort of fueled by drugs. Um, I think that Rasputin had a number of bullets in him before he was thrown in the River Neva, but yeah, they all, they all died of drowning. And, you know, drowning is a horrific way to die because it's one of those things where you kind of, you must know that death is approaching and it's getting very close and there's nothing you can do about it. You're in surprise, you're in fear, you're in panic. You hyperventilate, you start to take water in, you, your larynx sort of go into spasm because you're taking water in so no air can get in either. And it all kinds of, you know, starves you of oxygen so you're going to these hypoxic convulsions but then within two to three minutes you're unconscious 
and then clinical death follows in four to six minutes. Um, I did share this this morning. I did actually save a kid from drowning once, which I'm quite proud of. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about it because it happened at Ilkley, which is a local beauty spot. Some of you might know. There's a little stretch of the river at Ilkley where the river goes, there's like a bend and there's like a stony beach. And my kids have always loved going there just to throw stones in the water. You know, you can do it for hours, mainly at the ducks. <laughs> but, you know, on this particular stretch of the river, on the far side, the river currents are quite strong. And it goes in sort of a whirlpool type of thing at the far, far bank. And we were just getting up to leave after a day by the river, a really nice sunny day. And we were packing our things up and everything. I was sort of dressed as I am now. And I just saw this kid, eight or nine years old, really struggling in the sort of whirlpool current type thing. And I'm thinking, oh no, I'm going to have to go in and get this kid. Because nobody else, everybody else was just having fun, throwing balls around and doing daft stuff. And, you know, so I thought, oh, I'm going to have to go in and get this kid. So I was fully clothed, charged into the water. You know, this is my moment to be a hero. Swam out, managed to get this kid out, swam back to shore. I said, you know, who's with you? You know, who's brought you here? He said, oh, I'm with, I'm with me, ma'am. So I said, okay, where is she then? So he, he pointed her out. She was stretched out on a lilo in the shallow, sort of sunning herself, you know, in the, on this lilo. So I just went up to her. I said, oh, excuse me, I've, I've just pulled your son out of the water. You know, he looked like he was going under, but I managed to, to rescue him. And she didn't even open her eyes. She just said, say, I love she wasn't very grateful for her son's salvation it has to be said but never mind but in all seriousness you know this is you know a terrifying experience and let's just think in real terms this actually really happened to Jonah he voluntarily went over the side of the ship in a storm at sea and was alone in the water. Can you imagine what that must have been like? You know, however strong a swimmer you are, after a storm, there's always going to be a swell, isn't there? Apart from if the Lord Jesus is saying, peace, be still, there's going to be a fair swell. It's not going to be a nice place to be, is it? You know, because the seawater's cold, your limbs start to seize up. You're not very good at swimming anyway in that, in that state. So, you know, things are beginning to cause panic in Jonah at this point, And it's really not a nice place to be. He knows that his life is in danger and is likely to come to an end within the next few minutes. Most of us would, wouldn't we? Most of us would. We'd realize that the end is near. What comes into a person's mind when they're in that situation? Well, they say with drowning, don't they? Your, eyes is supposed to, your, your life's supposed to flash before your eyes. Sort of, I don't know whether that's true or not. But, you know, Jonah is, is close to death. And I wonder what we would be thinking about if we knew that our time on this earth was coming to an end imminently where would we be sort of mentally and emotionally at that moment in time no doubt there is panic there is that there is that desire for survival that's so inbuilt in us and yet Jonah at that point something happens in him which is quite extraordinary and I just wanted to tell you that I, I had a former colleague of mine who had a very serious car accident. And she was coming back from the Lake District late at night. She was really seriously um, dazzled by the headlights of another vehicle. And she crashed at about 50 miles an hour into a dry stone wall. 
And literally the vehicle was just, an, I mean, if you saw pictures of this vehicle, it was completely, you know, you wouldn't think anybody could survive this. But she was alive and she was trapped inside the vehicle. And everything was quiet because it was late at night and all she could hear was drip, 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 drip. Her own blood was literally just, her life blood was literally pouring out of her. This lady was a believer and she, she prayed. The first thing, she knew her life was coming to end, she prayed. And she said, Lord, I am ready to die. I'm ready to come to be with you. But if you want me to stay, please send somebody to help me now. Almost immediately she heard the engine of a car and the first person to arrive on the scene was a nurse who was able to reach into the vehicle through the smash glass, elevate her limbs and do all the stuff that nurses do, call a fire brigade, ambulance. And she sustained some very serious injuries, I have to say, but she did, she did survive and was restored to her family. I must say at this point that I do believe that in this text there is clear evidence that Jonah actually died. Now I know not everybody takes that view and actually you know the common view is probably that Jonah was thrown over the side because that's actually the chronological reading of the scripture. He was thrown over the side and then he was swallowed by the, the great fish or whatever it was. But I think if we look into the text a little bit more carefully we might look at it in a slightly different way. <coughs> So I've just tried to, to put into to, to different colours some of the things that Jonah's saying here. So in, in, verse, in verse 15 of chapter 1, he's thrown overboard. The raging sea becomes calm. Verse 17, the fish is appointed or prepared or provided or commissioned to swallow Jonah. And in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, he prayed from inside the fish's belly. So what did he pray? He says, he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. He's using the past tense there. Do you see that? Okay, he's referring to a prayer that he's already made, in other words. He's inside the fish's belly, and yeah, he prayed inside the fish's belly, but in that prayer, he's also referring in the past tense to something he's already prayed. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. And where did he pray from? From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my prayer. Now, my belief is that the realm of the dead is actually at this particular time, Sheol or Hades. And we'll come to that a little bit more detail in a minute. Just bear with me on that if you would. Um, is it possible to see the next section of the chapter? <coughs> Thanks very much. In verse 3 and 4 it says, You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. The currents swirled round about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. He's here on the surface of the sea. This, the, the waves are coming over him. He's, he's almost swimming about on the surface of the sea. And he prays again. Um, I think we might have missed a bit there. It's verse 3 and 4. Can we see that or not? Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, and he said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again. Uh, sorry, where are we? Yeah. Um, the currents are swirling around him. The waves and breakers are sweeping over him. And he says, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. So I, I believe he's praying this from the surface of the sea when he's first thrown into the water. Next bit. Okay, then the engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounding me is now going under the water. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, to the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, O oh Lord, brought my life up from the pit. 
Okay? He's gone down now under the water. And under the water, immediately prior to death, he remembered the Lord. So let's just kind of unpack that a little bit. And we'll go to the next slide, please. Jonah is cast into the sea initially. So he's thrown over the side of the boat. He's hurled into the sea. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again to your holy temple. He didn't pray before the journey to Joppa. He didn't pray while he was on the boat asleep. He didn't pray when he was confessing his sin that he was responsible for the storm on the deck of the boat to the sailors. He didn't pray even when they hurled him into the sea. But now he's completely alone. There's nobody to help him. There's no possible salvation from any source. And now he turns to pray. And interestingly, he turns to pray to a God who is omnipresent. He, in his Jewish mindset, wanted to run away from the presence of the Lord, which he associated with the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to get as far away from the presence of the Lord as he possibly could. But now he's realizing, it's coming home to him, that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. In the language of Psalm 3.9, where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I run from your presence? And then the psalmist gives all these different places where he could be. Even making his bed in Hades, in Sheol in the grave, even there, you are there, it says in the scripture. He knows now that God is omnipotent. He's a God who can send a storm so violent that he could break up a ship and kill all the, the, the sailors in it, just like that. But he's also a God who can stop that storm as soon as he gets the result he wants, which is Jonah in the sea, just like that. But also, Jonah knows now for sure that God is omniscient. He knows exactly what it will take to get to Jonah, to reach to him and into his inner man and to speak to him and to turn him around and to get him to change his ways. And, you know, those of us who have been parents will know that our kids, they're all individuals. You know, having had five kids, I can see they're all completely different and they respond in different ways. I have to tell you, my second eldest daughter... You know, she needed to be smacked so many times. She was so naughty. So, so naughty and stubborn. You know, you just couldn't get her to do what you wanted her to do. She was as hard as nails. I'm not kidding. You know, but my son, who, who's recently got married, I have hardly ever had to say anything to him. You know, not even tell him off. You know, so we have different levels, don't we? And God is able to operate on that level where he knows us intimately and he knows exactly what it will take and what circumstances are suitable. We don't know that, do we? You know, if you tell a little child not to do something that you know is bad for them, they don't always understand, do they, why you're telling them not to do it? Do they? They don't always understand. But you know as a mature adult, as a parent, that you're doing what is best for your child for their safety and well-being. Well, God is just like that. We don't always know what's best for us. You know, Steve might be asking for, you know, a 60K salary, you know, in Dublin somewhere, in some bank or something, you know. But God might actually want him to sweep the street so he can, he can meet lots of interesting Irish people. <laughs> Think about that one, Steve. Okay, so, you know, God knows what our real needs are. And in Jonah's case, God knows what it's going to take to reach this guy because he's one stubborn guy, isn't he? He's really stubborn. And God knows it's going to take something fairly extreme to get to him. 
But you know, Jonah is also praying to a God who is prepared to send intense suffering that he might be able to speak into people's lives. And that is a hard truth to take, but it's, that is for real. You know, that God is prepared to send things that are really, really tough into our lives in order that he might refine us, that he might discipline us, that he might speak to us, and so on and so forth. Jonah, because he's got a real connection with God, even though he is a rebellious prophet who's running away, he knows God. He's got a relationship with God. And he's, he's acknowledging God's sovereignty here because he says, you know, you hurled me into the depths of the sea. It wasn't the sailors. You know, physically, they might have done it. They might have been the ones who put me over the side, but it was you, you, God. You put me here. It was you who put me in this, in, this, in this place. This is exactly where you want me to be. That's a really, really big thing to be able to say when you're in a bad place, isn't it? If you're in a tough, tough place in your life, are you able to say, you have put me there, God, because you are sovereign and you would never have allowed anything into my life that was not meant for me, even though I cannot, I've got not got scoobies why this has happened, I've got no idea why you would do this or work on this level, but you know, Romans 8.28 says, God works all things together for good for those who love him, and that is, you've got to hang on to that sometimes, there's nothing else, you might be sometimes in such a deep place, there's nothing else, you've got to just hang on to that and believe it. You've got no other choice because you are in a dark and a deep place. And this is exactly where Jonah is. But he's able to see God's purpose beyond his immediate circumstances. And that's something as human beings that we struggle with, isn't it? That's something that's really, really difficult for us to do sometimes. To understand that we've got an all-knowing God who's outside of time. He's just so beyond anything we could ever imagine or envisage in terms of his intellect and his, his, just, his power and all that stuff. He's way beyond our capabilities. Sometimes we've just got to say, I've got no idea why this is happening. No idea why this is happening. But I do trust you, God, that you know and you're going to work something from it. Jonah is a type of Christ, and that's a, a key thing, obviously, with this particular chapter especially. Type being a word that we get from the Greek word meaning tupos, which means an outline. Okay, So in the Old Testament, we have lots of types, like Abraham and Isaac, quite a clear type of the father and the son going to the place of sacrifice together. Joseph in prison, you know, with the, the butler and the, the wine taster, bread and wine mentioned together in the scriptures. Christ died with two men, one on his right, one on his left and so on and so forth. The Old Testament is rich with what we would call typical teaching, indicating truths that would be fulfilled in the New Testament. And this is a case in point. Jonah is using language that is reminiscent of the Psalms, which give us an insight into the feelings and experiences of the Lord Jesus as he experienced the sufferings of Calvary. Psalm 69 says, of Jesus hanging on the cross. This is the psalm that speaks of him receiving gall for his meat and vinegar for his drink. He says, I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters. The floods engulf me. Do not let the flood waters engulf me or the depths swallow me or the pit close its mouth over me. Here we have in Jonah a picture of the Lord Jesus enduring wave after wave after wave after wave of God's judgment upon sin in his own person. Jonah voluntarily went into the stormy waters to save the sailors on the ship, just as the Lord Jesus endured 
all of the wrath of God against sin in his own body as he hung upon the tree. And in that way, Jonah becomes an illustration of the heart of the Christian gospel, which Paul encapsulates in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that is what Jonah's life has been used to illustrate by God. He has despair. Yes, I've been banished from your sight. He's got what he, he wanted. He's got an answer to his, you know, his heart's desire. He wanted to be away from God as far as he could. And then he says, I've been banished by your sight. And it's actually a place of despair. You know, I've got what I wanted, but I'm actually completely in despair. But then, within despair, there's hope as well because he is a believer. He knows God. He says, I will look again towards your holy temple. You know, I'm in despair. I'm going to die. I'm going to drown. But I will look again towards your holy temple. Is this a hint that Jonah actually believes that God's going to bring him back from the dead? Or just to save him in the situation that he's in? I guess you could read it both ways. Jonah's life is now ebbing away. As the waters begin to engulf him, the deep surrounds him, it says seaweed, just like the grave clothes wrapped around the person of Christ, seaweed wrapped around him. His life was ebbing away, and what does it say? I remembered you, Lord. Just like that friend of mine who was in that car crash. You know, the last thought that, that could have been in her mind was of the Lord, you know, to talk to God at that point. You know, I'm ready to die. Ready to die. Come be with you now in heaven. But if you've got a purpose for me on this earth, I'm willing to, if you like, stay. It's your will, not mine, be done. Amazing. His life is beginning to ebb away. He's losing consciousness. He's blacking out. He's now at the bottom of the sea. Weeds are sort of all tangling him up and so on. But you know, in a microsecond of time, he remembered God. That's a prayer. He, he remembered God. He's not, he's not expressing it. He's not, he's not giving an exposition of any verses he's learned. He, he just remembers God. That's it. And that shows us that he knows God. He's got a relationship with God. He's confident in that. Well, you know, I had a friend who was in the RAF and he was, um, he was, uh, he was actually on the sort of medical staff. And he told me that there was, a, there was quite a serious incident on one of the airfields he was working on. And a guy was brought in, unconscious and in a coma. He may die. The guy was trained to talk to the, the, you know, the casualties as they took them into to, you know, to surgery and so on. So he was talking to this guy all the time. Anyway, after a process of time, the guy who was the, who was the, the casualty actually recovered and as my friend walked through the wards of the RAF base, medical unit, the guy recognized his voice. And he called him by name. He said, hey, Jim, Jim, you were speaking to me when I was, when I was in a coma. You were speaking to me when I'd come out of that crash. You know, you never, ever know what happens in the last moments that a person has on this earth. A little word, if you've got a relative who, you know, is, 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 is at the point of death or they're not able to function, they're not able to speak, they don't appear to be very attentive. You do not know because they say, don't they, the hearing is the last thing to go. Also, you just don't know what goes on in that, whatever transactions might go on between a person and God in those final moments. You know, if a person knows about God, 
They might then just call out on him in that final moment. You just don't know. But at this particular time, Jonah remembered God. And not only that, you know, he's totally confident, isn't he? My prayer rose to you. Yeah, you know, I know you, God, and I know that my remembrance is just its going to mean something. It's a form of communication. It's actually taking place here. He's confident in that. But I believe, and again, I, I do you know, want to reiterate, I'm not gonna, trying to shove this down your throats or anything, but I do believe that the VeggieTales version of Jonah is not actually true, that there isn't a gospel choir inside the whale going to pop out and start singing and you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I do believe that Jonah actually died. And that the reason I say that is because, you know, he was, he was, he was saying, he said, in, in, it was from the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. To the roots of the mountains. Now, it was, it was obviously, it was thought that, the, that this place, Sheol, was at the center of the earth. And that the disembodied spirits of those who died went to that place to await the resurrection of the body. And the Lord Jesus Christ in, in Luke 16 tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And one went to Abraham's bosom, the, the, if you like, the, the compartment for those who are blessed. And the, the rich man went to the other place. He went to the compartment for those who don't know the Lord. And there was a great gulf fixed between the two. It tells us in Revelation that at the end, you know, death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. But when the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, he had been in Hades because Psalm 16 says of the Lord Jesus prophetically, you will not leave my soul in Hades. And that is quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost in relation to Christ. You will not leave my soul in Hades. Jesus was confident that although he went to Hades, he went there for a reason, because his body, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. His body was not subject to corruption because he was without sin. He went voluntarily into death. He dismissed his spirit. He's not, like, he's not dying like, like one of us would die. He's voluntarily going into death. So his body's placed in the tomb, his soul goes to Hades or Sheol, and he says on the cross, when he'd completely discharged everything in relation to sin, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because Jesus was, like you and me, body, soul, and spirit. Jonah 2. So, I believe that Jonah went to this place called Hades or Sheol, and of course, when those who were in that intermediate state, if you like, in a disembodied state, at the resurrection of Christ, they were liberated from that, from that place, because now it says in Scripture, and we are totally confident, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if you die as a believer today, you go in a disembodied state to be with the Lord, awaiting the resurrection of the body. And that person will be with the Lord until that day when Christ comes and all the dead will be raised incorruptible, those who've died in Christ. Well, Jonah's prayer from Hades is answered. He is resurrected after being swallowed up, I believe, by 
the great fish that God had prepared or provided. And perhaps this is actually the real miracle of the book of Jonah. You know, perhaps there's too much focus on this great fish and what kind of fish was it? Was it a whale? Was it a fish? Was it some kind of, you know, special creature that God just created for this particular purpose? The actual real miracle of this is that Jonah drowned and died and prayed and was brought back to fulfill the commission he had originally forsaken. That's my take on it anyway. Finally, let's look at the sign of Jonah. Can we just skip on a couple of bits? Thank you. In Matthew 12, the Lord Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah, which we have read of today. Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation ask for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he goes on to say, a greater than Jonah is here. The background to this is that the Pharisees and teachers of the law had accused the Lord Jesus Christ of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And in doing so, had committed the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin. So there is actually a sin, isn't there, in the Scripture, that cannot be forgiven. Now, people have all sorts of ideas about what that could be. But if you read the Bible in its context, it is very clear to me that it is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were that wicked and adulterous generation who observed the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ and concluded that he was doing it by the power of Satan. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, in my view, is saying that the Holy Spirit in the Lord Jesus Christ is the devil. I personally don't believe it's possible to commit the unpardonable sin today. I know others have different opinions on that, but my take on it is that that is what it was. That they were saying that the, the Holy Spirit himself, in the person of Christ, was Beelzebub or, or Satan. That's the background to this. So they then have the audacity to make that statement and say, hey, come on, give us a sign. Prove yourself. Show us who you really are. Come on, give us a sign. You're not going to get a sign except the sign. And that's the sign of the prophet Jonah. And just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the, heart, in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I know that some people may be unsure about this phrase, three days and three nights. So I just thought I would just mention that. Because we celebrate the death of the Lord Jesus on Good Friday and then we celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday. And that is not three days and three nights, is it? Okay, it's three days and two nights, am I right? Yeah. There are two possible explanations for this. One of them is that nothing in Scripture tells us that Jesus died on a Friday. So why, I wonder, did whoever it was, the early church fathers or whatever, decide that, you know, Good Friday, Good Friday, that's a that's a funny one as well, isn't it? Um, Good Friday was, you know, the, the time when we think of that event happening. Quite possible that Jesus died on a Thursday. We know he rose again on the first day of the week. 
which to us is a Sunday. But I did hear a Jewish scholar speaking one time, and it quite impressed me with, with what he had to say. And he said that actually, you know, with our sort of Western mindset, we don't kind of understand some of the Jewish idioms or the sort of figures of speech that they use. And he said, where in Scripture, where you read 40 days and 40 nights, or three days and three nights, it just actually means part of 40 days or part of three days. It actually just equates to three days or 40 days. You know, so think of it in those terms. So, you know, you can, you can pick the bones out of that one, if you like. But I thought it was, was worth mentioning. So, Jonah was a real human being who had real and extraordinary dealings with God. God shows us that he's not willing to give up on his rebellious servant. He's going to chastise him. He's going to discipline him but he is not going to discard him. And that should be an encouragement to you and me. It's a great thing, isn't it, that God is prepared to use imperfect people. Am I right? Because, you know, none of us, let's be honest, would be used in any shape or form by God if the requirement was that you had to have everything in, you know, in order and be perfect. So it's a great encouragement that God uses people who are like Jonah. And let's be honest, he was a bit of a failure, wasn't he really, to be fair? One thing I really like about this and is really interesting to me is that this book does focus a little bit on the effects of Jonah's preaching, if we can call it preaching, his life preaching or his, his testimony that he knew God. It, it turned the sailors on the boat around to, to make vows to God and make sacrifices, to turn to the real and living God. And God used this, this very important, you know, sorry, this very rebellious, stubborn guy who's actually running away to save these people on this boat. He also causes 120,000 people in Nineveh to repent. I mean, I don't want to steal anyone's thunder. I know somebody else will be speaking on this in a bit. But, you know, he uses Jonah to achieve that as well. But actually, I think the focus of this book is really God's work in Jonah as opposed to his work through Jonah. And I think there's a real lesson for us, you know, in that as well. That sometimes as Christians, we can be really absorbed and focusing, what is God going to do, you know, through me? What great exploits am I going to do for God? And that's, that's great. It's great to have those kind of thoughts. You know, what can I achieve for God? What's God going to use me to do? What ministry will I have? And actually, you know, maybe God's saying through this little book, actually, there's an awful lot of work to do in you, you know. I mean, I don't really like to take too much of a look inside, you know, myself, because I know what, there's a lot of pretty rubbish stuff in there. But, you know, God does use circumstance and he orchestrates things in our lives to do a work in our lives, because primarily he's concerned with forming the image of Christ in us. And sometimes that can mean really painful experiences and really difficult and challenging times. But that is his ultimate purpose, isn't it? He's actually more concerned with his work in us, bringing that image to perfection, rather than what we might you know, achieve or not achieve, so-called, in our lives. Ultimately, Jonah is a person who is being used as a signpost to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ, a shadow of things to come. And that's why the Lord says... A greater than Jonah is here. And so we can look back as New Testament believers, if you like, and we can see the whole picture, what God was painting in an outline form in the Old Testament. We can see gloriously and wonderfully lit up through New Testament truth. And we can understand now that Christ has died according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, 
and that he rose again according to the scriptures. Just as Jonah was vomited out by the fish onto the land, the Lord Jesus emerged from the grave and lives now in the power of an endless life. Thank you.